This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. We've asked some big questions in the last few episodes, like what is communism and what is socialism and how are they different? What do we hope to gain by calling the United States a Christian nation? How did communist Russia use the darker parts of the United States to promote atheism? Which left me asking what seems like a really simple question. What is the United States? That's what we're exploring here today and in the next few episodes. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back to the beginning of season three. I hope you enjoy. After the West was won, uh, we'd put a navy on the oceans, we'd ousted the Native Americans and the Mexicans. America got to the edge of California, looked out across the Pacific and said, huh, I wonder what's out there. It wasn't just a simple desire to conquer or to get more land. There was some of that, of course. Okay, there... There was a lot of that, but there was something on those islands that our growing country needed. Something we needed badly. So we set out into the ocean, hopped on ships, armed ourselves, and claimed nearly a hundred islands. This is a story of economic greed, Supreme Court cases, war, and, well, do you know the stuff that we needed that was on those islands? I asked some people at the Spark Christian Podcast Conference what they thought we needed on a bunch of islands in the Pacific Ocean. Just to enlarge the territory of the country, uh, maybe as a line of defense, perhaps, uh, from from the West. <laughs> yeah, that's a good guess. Um, I'll tell you, it was, it was for a resource. The gold rush out in the California, in California, gold out there too, I don't know. It, is, um, it was an animal product, if that helps, and it was not whale blubber or whale oil. Birds? What about birds? You're on the right track. Uh, That's as far (laughs) as I've gotten so far. (laughs) Let's put that question to Daniel Immerwar. Daniel Immerwar. Author of the book, How to Hide an Empire, and an associate professor at Northwestern University. And you might ask, what is the point of having dozens of um, uninhabited islands? And the answer is that um, the islands were covered in bird poop. It was bird poop. Oh. Bird poop. Okay, there's a story behind that, so (laughs) go ahead. Of course there is. And that's our story for today. How did bird poop change the map of the United States? And how did the U.S., which some people consider to be a Christian nation, justify taking over foreign territory? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this 
is truth. Okay, back to our story. We conquered over a hundred islands for bird poop. When bird poop is used as an agricultural fertilizer, it's, it's called guano, bat poop as well. That's right. In the middle of the 19th century, the United States was in a desperate need for guano. We humans do a lot of things, good and bad, for economic reasons. Often, if you want to understand the reasons we behave the way we do, say it with me now, follow the money. The United States was facing a serious agricultural crisis at the time, such that guano, which some people called white gold... Which should really be the name of a band. I'm just saying. Anyhow, white gold. ...was intensely valuable. And the United States went on this sort of imperial shopping spree, just taking as many of these islands as it could in order to scrape them clean and then haul the guano back uh, to, to mainland farms. It turns out that plants need something elemental in the soil in order to grow well. Nitrogen. Which is everywhere. Let's you and I do an experiment really quick. You can do this wherever you are, even if you're driving. Take a deep breath in and hold it. Okay, are your cheeks puffed out? Well, inside our mouths right now, 78% of that air is nitrogen. Basically, if you separated all the elements mixing around inside your mouth right now, from the left side all the way to your teeth on the right side, would be nitrogen. (sighs) (laughs) That was a lot of talking on one breath. Turns out our plants need all that stuff, all that nitrogen. The trouble is that farmers planted as much as they could on that rich American soil without paying much attention to maintaining nutrients. So, year after year after year, the ground produced less and less. It was depleted of nitrogen. Nitrogen is in the soil. If it gets sucked up by the plants, carrots, potatoes, corn, we eat that corn and excrete the nitrogen. Not a bad deal if we're going to spread that all over our fields. It would put the nitrogen back. But we humans get all caught up in our sanitary concerns. For good reason. That means, though, that we flush away those nutrients. Where are the plants supposed to get nitrogen from if we're not putting it back where we found it? That's right, bird poop. As Daniel said, the U.S. went on an imperial shopping spree, scooping up all these islands that were covered in feet, yes, feet, of bird poop. Look, the guano doesn't just jump on the ships. You actually have to have people to to scrape it off and mine it, and it turns out to be a really dangerous and difficult job, arguably the worst job you could have in the 19th century, because it's kind of like coal mining, except that in order to do it, you have to be marooned on an island, and a dry island, that's what makes the guano pile high. Welcome to the worst job in the 1800s. When he says dry island, he means that there was little or no rain to wash the guano away, which is how it caked over decades of deposits. Everything the men needed to work there had to be brought with them. Yes, it was terrible, but these men, largely of African descent, performed a real service for the country. We needed that nitrogen. There was no way of getting it out of the air yet. Without this guano, there might have been food shortages. 
farmers could have changed their farming methods, but that wasn't going to be easy to do either. We needed the nitrogen-rich resources those uninhabited, unclaimed islands had. Take a moment to think about this. How does a country function without access to resources? It doesn't. If the U.S. was going to get through that era, we had to have that guano. We just went about it in the completely wrong way. Here's Daniel again. Often the laborers who did it were um, sort of tricked into it. Say you, young man, are you tired of your humdrum life? Working in a factory, living in a hovel? How would you like to travel to a tropical island? Cool ocean breezes, beautiful women, a short workday. Why, sign up here, son, sign right there. That was completely bogus. Once the men paid to go or promised to pay or were kidnapped, they were stuck on an island with other men, not the promised beautiful women, putting in long hours with no escape. It's not like there were flights out of there every hour. They were on an island in the middle of a vast ocean in an era before modern communication. Once they were there, they were stuck. The men were understandably upset. And uh, there's this island uh, near Haiti, uh, Navassa Island, where uh, a bunch of labor, it's one of the most profitable guano islands in the U.S. Uh, uh, overseas empire. And these men who'd been working the island under incredibly awful conditions uh, rose up against their overseers, uh, got in a fight and ended up killing five of their white, these are black men, uh, and five of their white overseers. And it was a huge deal. A bunch of black men rising up to kill their white overseers in the 1800s. Yeah, it was a big deal. You can imagine the reaction from the public. But here's where our story gets really interesting. But what was amazing was that their lawyer... Who was the first African-American to pass the Maryland bar exam... Made this incredible argument on their behalf. He didn't say they didn't do it. He told, he's like, yep, they totally killed those people. Uh, but what he said was, um, they can't be convicted of murder because this island on which this happened, Avasa Island isn't in the United States. Isn't in the United States. That the, the, the Guano Islands Act uh, is unconstitutional, or at least doesn't uh, put, put these islands under, under U.S. federal law, and therefore they can't be prosecuted in a U.S. court. Since these islands were not technically in the U.S., the courts had no right to prosecute a crime committed on the islands. That was the responsibility of the country that owned those islands whoever that happened to be. And it, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had to figure out, does the United States extend? Can it extend overseas? Can its laws extend overseas? What are these places really? Are they just, you know, what are these rocks? Are they parts of the United States? Or do they belong to someone else? This is the Supreme Court we're talking about. The decisions they make extend way beyond just this one case. If they claimed that U.S. law applied on those islands it would apply other places as well. That gave the country permission to expand beyond our tidy little map, simply by doing business there. If they let these guys off who were basically being held as slaves, even though they confessed to murder, that created a whole set of problems as well. That would mean letting admitted murderers go free. Where was the justice in that? 
and the courts ultimately decided, yes, they're part of the United States. The men can be uh, convicted and tried for murder as they were. Uh, and But, you know, in doing that, it kind of uh, admitted that empire is a possibility for the United States, which wasn't something that people knew. You know, it's this kind of weird comic episode in U.S. history, but it's actually really important because it laid the legal foundation for overseas empire. Uh, this was the first moment where the United States expanded overseas, and the legal questions that came up on these small uh, uninhabited islands turned out to be the determining legal questions uh, that allowed the United States to take far larger territories, such as Alaska, such as Hawaii, uh, such as Puerto Rico. We'll continue our story after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. When we left off, the United States had set a new precedent that we could go beyond our borders into the ocean to claim new territories. A country growing as fast and as big as the United States needed a lot of resources. Even though we've got a diverse landscape here, we can't always get everything we need from our native soil. Sometimes we take land so we can get access to those resources. Like guano for the nitrogen that could not be gotten from the air. And for other substances that we did not yet know how to synthesize. Like, say, rubber. As we industrialized, we needed rubber from rubber trees. They only grow in tropical climates like those in Southeast Asia. We also needed palm oil from Africa as a lubricant for our machines, and tungsten from Korea for light bulb filaments. As technology got better, our economy became more global. That works great in times of peace when nations are talking to each other, but in war, once friendly countries can restrict our access. Meaning no lights, no phones, no motor cars. Some people saw this dilemma and said, hey, that's no problem if we just own the distant lands where these goods are produced. It's much harder to get into a trade war if you're trading with yourself. And they had this handy tool from the Guano Islands where they could claim that something was a territory instead of a state. So something could be owned by us, but not be a part of us. Uh-huh. Bringing us to the Spanish-American War. It's one of the weirdest moments in U.S. history, and I say that having just discussed with you the Guano Islands episode. We as a country had taken over the West, murdering and displacing Native people. We fought a war with Mexico and with ourselves. The United States had gone through dramatic changes, an era where men were sent off to battle to prove their worth that they were men. Now that things settled down, 
there were people wondering if American manhood could survive outside of war and conquest. Were there still lands left to conquer? You bet your sweet guano there were. By the end of the 19th century, there were a number of people who felt that in the same way that European powers had um, claimed a lot of colonies in the past decade or two in Africa and in Asia, and this was all happening very quickly, that the United States should get in on the game as well. If the United States was going to be great, we had to snap up some of that third world land. Uh, and this was an argument. Some people thought yes, some people thought no. Teddy Roosevelt vociferously and passionately felt that the answer was yes, the United States should do this. The Spanish Empire, as in Spain, was not doing so hot in the late 1800s. They owned places like the Philippines and Cuba. And those people who lived in those lands were not having it. When rebellions flared up, the Spanish reacted with brutality, massacring Cubans in large numbers. Before we go crazy here, a little context. Because history is complicated. Point number one, the US sees foreign lands, some of them not far from our borders like Cuba, being oppressed. Should we intervene? That's always a big question and there are no easy answers there. How bad does the oppression of a foreign people have to be before we intervene. Second, we might be tempted to say that it was all for the sake of business that we considered going to war. The Philippines gave us access to new markets, and it allowed us to import goods that we needed, like rubber, which we did not yet know how to synthesize. If we were going to have rubber, we needed tropical climate. Third, if lands just offshore like Puerto Rico and Cuba are controlled by a foreign government, then we've got a problem. The U.S. enjoys vast protective oceans on our east and on our west and largely friendly neighbors to the north and the south. All of that puts real distance between us and our enemies. But with those islands, if one of them were to fall into the hands of an enemy, we could be in a lot of trouble. Like, say, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Fourth, if the U.S. pulled out of the Philippines once the Spanish were gone, the Germans were going to step in. They had plans to take it over, meaning people in the Philippines would have another European empire to answer to. And if the Germans got a hold of the Philippines pre-World War I, they would have had a solid presence in the Pacific. Number five, the U.S. may not have known this at the time, but the Germans were making plans for the U.S. It was called Operation Plan 3. Kaiser Wilhelm II hoped to set up a base in Puerto Rico and then attack major cities on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Our concern that foreign countries were trying to sneak closer to us had some truth behind it. Now, that's a lot of moving pieces, right? Take all of that into account moving forward. Now that you know about the Germans and the resources and people being oppressed, should the United States have entered the fray in Cuba? President McKinley wanted to stay out of it at first. He and Congress would later declare war in 1898. Teddy Roosevelt, though, was itching for a fight. Not that he could do much legally, to start that fight. Theodore Roosevelt was at the time the assistant secretary of the Navy, so 
not the most powerful position in the U.S. government. He's the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. I mean, not a bad position, but he wasn't in charge unless his boss was out of the picture. Like, say, I don't know, on February 25th, 1898? And that means when his boss is indisposed, uh, Teddy Roosevelt then becomes the acting secretary of the Navy. No, Teddy. Don't do it, Teddy. Go ride a horse or something or buy some puffy pants. Don't do it. In an afternoon, his boss went out to to an osteopath um, so to get a sort of medical treatment. It's basically sort of akin to getting a massage. Uh, and and Teddy Roosevelt sort of looked left, looked right. He's like, oh, I see no one uh, in charge but me. Uh, and then he, you know, he said, okay, I guess I'm the acting secretary of the Navy. And then he just started uh, sending off orders left and right. Um, ships prepare for war, fill your you know, uh, reserves with coal. And uh, one of the most consequential ones was that he um, dispatched the uh, Asiatic squadron to um, to Hong Kong and, and told it that if the United States went to war with Spain, which looked like something that might happen, uh, but it was going to be a war over Cuba if it happened. He said, if this happens, your orders are to attack the Philippines, which is all on the other side of the planet, uh, but was also a Spanish holding. While his boss was at the doctors, Roosevelt prepared for war. Not just a war where the focus of the problem was in Cuba, but also in the Philippines thousands and thousands of miles away from the uprising. But Teddy Baby saw a chance to spread our boundaries. Oh, and what about his boss? The guy who left for a doctor's appointment? His boss got back and was, you know, was shocked. He was like, I literally, I, I just went out to the office for a second, and you have um, laid the groundwork for a trans-oceanic war, um, to which Teddy Roosevelt said, yep. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing is that he got away with it. What's the Secretary of the Navy going to do? Admit that he was foolish enough to let his assistant start a war while he was gone? Turn all those ships around? Cut the whole thing off? That would make him look weak. Buffoonish. Not to mention that the country was itching for a fight. Any fight. Then the United States went to war with Spain, and, you know, the U.S. Navy then took Manila. Uh, you know, invaded the Philippines, uh, or at least defeated the Spanish in the Philippines, which ultimately gave the United States possession of this really large colony that was nowhere near Cuba, which was the site of the original conflict. Seriously, let's start a hashtag, nowhere near Cuba. Well, so there are reasons, and, and um, it's confusing because a lot of the reasons are speculative. It's not like there was ongoing business in the Philippines, and it was really important to make sure that, you know, the right president got into power and, you know, that kind of, it's not that. Uh, it's rather that, well, some people saw the Philippines as really important um, economically. Maybe it would be a good market for U.S. goods. Maybe it would be a good source of raw materials. Like the aforementioned rubber. Perhaps beyond that, it could be a stepping stone to China. Maybe the Chinese market would open up. If so, the Phil having the Philippines could be really valuable. And then there's also this weird gender and race stuff that was really quite clearly part of the conversation. It's hard to read um, the speeches of the jingos, which are the, the men who want war and who want an expansive version of that war, um, without really feeling that one of their concerns is um, that the United States should should be in the business of conquest. This is the generation after the Civil War. Uh, you know, their fathers had fought in the war, and I think they were feeling a need to, to prove their own manhood, and they, they can be quite explicit about that. And there it is, that old nugget that manhood is proven by going to war. Without that, then men would have to prove their character by staying home and providing for their families. Instead, they could show their valor by being brave. Not a new concept in the world, 
That concept was also in Native American communities before the Europeans got here, like warriors from the Sioux tribe who went off on war parties so they had stories to tell. Apparently, this is part of the male condition. And then there's, you know, just a lot of talk, including from Teddy Roosevelt, about the need to uh, spread the Anglo-Saxon race. Um, it's not covert. This is this is the language that they use, um, you know, to spread liberty um, for the United States to um, sort of, you know, move its flag all, all over the world. Um, this is the kind of thing that they speak about. And it's a little hard to say exactly you know, of all of these reasons, what was the impetus? Because all of it is sort of vague and diffuse. Um, but nevertheless, it added up, at least in some people's minds, to a, a considerable appetite for empire. This was, after all, the age of Darwin and the survival of the fittest, which gave oxygen to the eugenics movement that believed that humanity should breed in such a way that favored the strong. In other words, white folks. But don't let it stop at the guilt trip. It's a little too easy to do that. Remember, if we hadn't gone in, these holdings of the Spanish Empire might have become German, which would have really bit us in the backside during World War I. And yes, there was the desire to help those that the Spanish were oppressing. We can't deny that either. People in the Philippines and Cuba and all the others needed outside help. We just helped by taking control. But I think there's something we can all agree on. It wasn't Teddy Roosevelt's right to kick things off. To those people who write curriculum for men's groups and churches, can we stop holding Teddy Roosevelt up as the ideal man? Yes, he was a tough dude. Later in his life, he was at an event where he was supposed to speak, he got shot in the chest, and still delivered his intended speech. That happened. But the guy started a war that was not his right to start. So are we done with the cute quotes from Roosevelt? Thanks. Roosevelt kicked off the war. McKinley called for a declaration of war and Congress got behind it. Then President McKinley was in charge of running the whole thing. When Spain ended the war, guess who they negotiated peace terms with? The United States. Not people in the Philippines or Cuba. The U.S. had won. Now, what were we going to do with those territories? The Cubans and Filipinos fought a war with white Europeans for independence, only to find themselves being ruled by a different set of white people. Leading the United States to ask an ugly question. And forgive me for repeating this, but this is what they were thinking. Could brown people be trusted to govern themselves? McKinley, much to his shame now, didn't seem to think so. In his opinion, the best option was to educate the Filipinos and uplift and Christianize them and by God's grace do the very best we could for them as our fellow men for whom Christ died. History is filled with people who thought that their Christian duty was to share their faith with native people, but not their rights. There may have been reasons to take over these lands. I mean, keeping them from the Germans, helping those oppressed by the Spanish, uplift and Christianize the people, etc. But there are four major takeaways for us today. Number one, if these territories, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, etc., are a part of the U.S., why is it so easy for us to forget about them? 
Number two, why haven't we given these territories the rights we enjoy as states? Number three, how did McKinley expect us to share the gospel with the people of the Philippines after we'd bombed the snot out of them? And we did. We leveled the place. Number four, how does it impact our witness to the world when some of us claim that this is a Christian nation, and yet there are people living under our flag who don't have the same rights as you and me? What are we talking about when we talk about the United States? What is our country? Where are our borders? Is it just the 50 states in the District of Columbia? Did it ever include the Philippines and Cuba? What about Puerto Rico, American Samoa, the American Virgin Islands, and other territories that we've kept in a weird territory limbo since the Spanish-American War? They are still territories, but many of us don't think of them as part of the U.S. And they don't have the same rights as states. We'll get into those specifics in our next episode. Until then, I would love for you to share your thoughts and comments on social media at at trucepodcast or email me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I may even read your comments on the show. Special thanks to our guest, Daniel Immerwar. His book, which is just great, is How to Hide an Empire. I first heard about Daniel on WNYC's podcast, On the Media. Have you ever heard a Christian podcast that reported on fun, interesting stories like this? I'm guessing no. If you'd like to help me change Christian media, support this show by clicking the donate button at trucepodcast.com. If you contribute a little each month, you'll even get access to content not available anywhere else. While you're on the website, join our email list. I won't spam you, and you'll be able to download my free one-week media fast curriculum, which is a fun challenge for you and your small group. Special thanks to those who let me use their voices in this episode. Paul Hastings of The Compelled Podcast, Angel McCoy from Angel Reads the Bible, and Savannah. Thanks also to Nick Starin for his support. God willing, we'll continue our conversation with Daniel Imbrewar in two weeks. Subscribe to this podcast so you get every new episode as it's released. And leave us a review. We've got 45 five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and only about a dozen reviews. Let's see if we can get that number up. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Good night, everybody. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.